The following is a sermon from Park Church in Denver, Colorado. More information and resources can be found online at parkchurch.org. Good morning. Our scripture reading this morning is from Luke chapter 10. Verses 25 to 37. Luke chapter 10, verses 25 to 37. If you don't have a Bible with you this morning, there should be one in the pew back in front of you. You'll find our passage on page 816. If you don't own a Bible, please take one with you as a gift from Park Church. Again, we're reading from Luke chapter 10, verses 25 to 37. And behold, a lawyer stood up to put him to the test, saying, Teacher, what shall I do to inherit eternal life? He said to him, What is written in the law? How do you read it? And he answered, You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your strength and with all your mind and your neighbor as yourself. And he said to him, You have answered correctly. Do this and you will live. But he, desiring to justify himself, said to Jesus, And who is my neighbor? Jesus replied, A man was going down from Jerusalem to Jericho, and he fell among robbers who stripped him and beat him and departed, leaving him half dead. Now by chance a priest was going down that road, and when he saw him, he passed by on the other side. So likewise a Levite, when he came to the place and saw him, passed by on the other side. But a Samaritan, as he journeyed, came to where he was, and when he saw him, he had compassion. He went to him and bound up his wounds, pouring on oil and wine. Then he set him on his own animal and brought him to an inn and took care of him. And the next day he took out two denarii and gave them to the innkeeper, saying, Take care of him, and whatever more you spend, I will repay you when I come back. Which of these three do you think proved to be a neighbor to the man who fell among robbers? He said, the one who showed him mercy. And Jesus said to him, you go and do likewise. This is the word of the Lord. Teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life? I mean, maybe he's asking out of curiosity. Maybe he really wants to know, like, what must I do to be with God forever? Maybe he's playing theological games, or maybe there's part of the questioning that he really doesn't know. The text doesn't tell us, but it does say that he stood up to put Jesus to the test. So there's that. What we learn later is that there is a deeper motivation for himself to to justify himself before Jesus. It's like he's asking, hey, Jesus, what's the bare minimum that I must do to receive all the benefits of God, including eternal life? Jesus creatively and winsomely, as he always does, responds with a question. He says, what is written in the law? How do you read it? And he answered, well, you should love the Lord your God with all of your 
heart and with all of your soul, with all your strength, with all your mind, and love your neighbor as yourself. And Jesus says, you've answered correctly. Do this and you'll live. And the lawyer could have stopped right there. I mean, he got the question right. Jesus put his stamp of approval on it. But the lawyer asks another question. He says, but who is my neighbor? Eugene Peterson makes an interesting observation. He says, why does the scholar ask for a definition? Clearly because he needs to defend himself against responding to the text personally. Defining neighbor depersonalizes the neighbor. It turns him or her into an object, a thing to which he can take control, to do with whatever he wants, but it also depersonalizes the scriptural text. He wants to talk about the text, treat the text like a thing, dissect it, analyze it, discuss it endlessly, but Jesus doesn't play that game. Jesus, instead, tells a story, and it's one of his most famous stories, the Good Samaritan. Open up your Bibles if you haven't, have them uh, closed to Luke chapter 10, verse 30. Let's read together what Jesus responds with in this parable of the Good Samaritan one more time. Verse 30 of Luke chapter 10, Jesus replied, a man was going down from Jerusalem to Jericho. He fell among robbers who stripped him and beat him and departed, leaving him half dead. Now by chance, a priest was going down that road and when he saw him, he passed by on the other side. So likewise, a Levite, when he came to the place and saw him, passed on the other side. But a Samaritan, as he journeyed, came to where he was, and when he saw him, he had compassion. He went to him and bound up his wounds, pouring oil and wine, and he set him on his own animal and brought him to an inn and took care of him. And the next day he took out two denarii and gave it to the innkeeper, saying, Take care of him, and whatever more you spend, I will repay you when I come back. Which of these, do you think, proved to be a neighbor to the man who had fallen among robbers? And the lawyer said, The one who has showed him mercy. Jesus said, Go and do likewise. To the lawyer, a Samaritan in contrast to the Levite and the priest. We're like opposite ends of the spectrum when it came to religious and moral standing. You see, Levite and priest were the religious leaders who were expected to have a moral guidance of sort that would look on with compassion, and yet it's the despised Samaritan that because of religious and racial and cultural divides, the last person on earth who would be elevated in a parable like this from this so-called Messiah a Jew could ever think of. And yet it's this very Samaritan who ends up being the good neighbor. Peterson continues his commentary on this point and he says, the scholar is impaled by the question the words of scripture can no longer be handled by means of definition, like who is my neighbor. The text insists on participation. Will you be a neighbor? Jesus insists 
on participation. Jesus dismisses the scholar with a command. He says, go and do. Live what you read. We read the Bible in order to live out the word of God. Amen? Church, we are in a series called The Mission of God, and last week we got to explore a heart for global missions that reflects the heart of God. And today, we get to look at the art of neighboring and in particular, hospitality. And those are interconnected in a lot of ways. And so as we examine kind of the here and now, the everyday stuff of life, we're going to discover that God has something for each one of us. My wife and I, when we were in uh, college, um, I was studying Bible and theology, and I was ready to like impact the world for Jesus and uh, the, the language that I heard a lot was like, go and be something great somewhere else. For some reason, it felt more important than the here and now to go to wild places and preach the gospel and to be a missionary there. And hear me now, some of you, that is the call that the Lord will have on your life. And all of us, that's our responsibility as the church to support that. But most of us will find ourselves day in and day out in a job that doesn't feel adventurous, that a day-to-day kind of like life looks pretty ordinary. And yet the call of mission on our lives is the same as the one who goes to another place. In fact, my wife and I, well, my current now wife, uh, when we were dating in college, we broke up for 24 hours because I was buying into the lie that to make a significant impact for the Lord, I had to go be a missionary in Africa. I don't know why Africa. I think probably influenced more by Bono and U2 and all the stuff that they were doing during that time. I got the bracelets, the one campaign, all that. Um, and as cool as Bono was, it's not truly what, it, what was necessarily most important. I'm grateful for my wife who texted me and said, I think we need to talk because I still don't feel called to Africa, but I think you've got it wrong. And she sat me down in an In-N-Out burger, amen, (laughs) with note cards. (laughs) And it was the best uh, post-breakup reunion uh, over In-N-Out and a note card presentation (laughs) from my then-girlfriend who said, we are to live lives missionally anywhere we go. If I feel called to Africa, I'll go. But right now, here I am, and I'm called here. And I was like, let me marry you. Okay. (laughs) Today we are going to look at this question, guys. How do we neighbor well? How do we show hospitality? How do we live as the hospitable people of God that we are created to be? And, And really, if we think about it, what does hospitality mean in a interior design obsessed, Instagrammable tablescape lifestyle? What does it mean for us in a place like Denver where 40% of the households, by statistic, are a single-person residence? How do we, in that space, welcome the stranger, as Scripture calls us? How do we, when we are so busy chasing the activities of Colorado, truly get to know the neighbors that God has placed around us? How do we slow down enough to have the time to be present with people 
in our workplace, in our neighborhoods? And how do we expect ourselves to extend a radical, generous generous hospitality to the stranger when we don't often do that well in the church? We're going to be looking at kind of a working definition of hospitality. This is by no means extensive or exhaustive, but, but here's four points that I find in biblical ancient hospitality that we can reclaim today. First, it's rooted in God's gracious welcome to us. Secondly, it starts with the household of God. That's us. It includes generous welcome of strangers into the household. And it serves as a gospel demonstration to the world. This is going to be kind of our lens by which we look at the history of ancient hospitality from Old Testament and New Testament. We'll see how that changed over time as we get into the, the early church in the first centuries. And then we'll see, bring us up to speed today to see how the different changes in culture as well as, um, as family have led us to a place where this becomes a challenge for us today. My prayer is that we would reclaim this as the people of God, as an identity that we live out of, and I hope that you don't hear, I need to do more things in my already chaotic life. It might mean something for your chaotic life, like making it less chaotic, but by no means is this a another burden to place on you. This is an identity to live out. So let's pray that the Spirit would help us do that today. Spirit, we ask that you do what you do. Illuminate scripture to us. Convict us of the truth. As sons and daughters of God Most High, would you graciously take us on a journey of exploring this radical call to ancient hospitality today. We ask in Jesus' name, amen. The Old Testament portrays God as a gracious host over and over again. One of the first times we really start to see this is uh, with God and Abraham. God calls Abraham out of the land of Ur into a place that is not his home. He literally calls somebody who is planted to be uprooted and to be, take on the identity of a sojourner, someone who lives in a land that's not his own, who's really a stranger to a place and to a people. But God's invitation is that if you follow me and obey me, I will make you a great nation. I will bless you. He welcomes him in to obedience and provides for him along the way. I want to take a look at Psalm 23, a familiar passage in the Old Testament It's on mugs, it's at funerals, it's at weddings, it's kind of everywhere. But have you ever noticed the deep language of hospitality that David says is true about God? Let's take a look together. The Lord's my shepherd, I shall not want. Another way to translate that in kind of everyday slang is I have everything I need. I've got everything I need. He makes me lie down in green pastures. He leads me beside still waters. He restores my soul. All actions of a gracious host, rest, care, restoration. He leads me in paths of righteousness for his namesake. Even though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will not fear for you're with me. You're present. You're here. You're paying attention. Your rod and your staff, they comfort me. And check this out. You prepare a table before me. 
How? When? Where? In the presence of my enemies. So as, as the enemies are coming against me, you, God, become a place of refuge and abundance and feasting. You anoint my head with oil, my cup overflows. All of this is hospitality language, an anointing of the head prepared for a feast, overflowing abundance. Surely goodness and mercy will follow me all the days of my life, and I shall dwell where? In the house of God forever. David says, I am welcomed by God into his household, his family. And as you hear the word household today, it's not the homes that we live in like like we experience here and now. Instead, it's a network of dynamic relationships, multi-generational. It includes people even outside the home, welcomed in. It's where like work happens and life happens. And worship happens. A household is far more intricate and bigger than we could ever experience today, just culturally. So David says, I'm welcomed into the house of God forever. That's my heritage. That's the lineage that I'm a part of. God as gracious host is also seen in the commands that are given to Israel to love one another and to love the stranger and welcome him. Israel's command to love their neighbor is rooted and connected into the very love of God. We see this in Leviticus 19, where we have passages of, uh, and commands of hospitality. It says this in 19.18, but you shall love your neighbor as yourself, colon, I am the Lord. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. I'm the Lord. Because I have loved you, because my character is gracious, compassionate, slow to anger, abounding in steadfast love, love your neighbor as yourself. It's out of the identity of being welcomed by God the host that we live out loving one another. If you're not loving one another, you're not understanding that God has loved you. And so it's from the love of God that our outpouring of love for one another comes, but what about the stranger? Take a look at this. Uh, in Christine Pohl's excellent work, Making Room, highly recommend this book. I have a bunch of resources I'll put up at the end for you to snap pictures of, okay, if you want to read deeper. Uh, she says this, for the people of ancient Israel, understanding themselves as strangers and sojourners with responsibility to care for vulnerable strangers in their midst was just part of what it means to be the people of God. Leviticus 19 picks up on the same idea. It says, when a stranger sojourns with you in the land, you shall not do him wrong. You shall treat the stranger who sojourns with you as a native. Wouldn't it be nice if Colorado natives treated us like natives who are from California? <laughs> and you shall love him as yourself. For you were strangers in the land of Egypt. Colon, I am the Lord your God. So God commands his people, because I've loved you, love one another. And remember, you were strangers at one point too in the land of Egypt, and I rescued you out. So go, love the stranger. Out of what identity? The identity that I am the Lord who has welcomed you. So how did Israel do throughout the Old Testament, we think? Kids, 
Let me see your thumbs. Can I get some thumbs from kids in the room? We're stoked that kids are here today. Uh, kids, will you help us out? Do you think Israel did a good job of being good or not so good job? Yeah, I'm seeing some thumbs down. Uh, parents, you're still like wondering. They did poorly. They did poorly. Unfortunately, here's, here's even an example of what Jeremiah says. As we think about hospitality and neighboring and how, how well did Israel live out their identity and their call in the world, Jeremiah 9, 4 through 6, it says, Beware of your neighbors. That's a fun sign for your neighborhood. Put no trust in them of any, in any of your kin, for your kin are supplanters, and every neighbor goes about like a slanderer. They all deceive their neighbors. No one speaks the truth. They have taught their tongues to speak lies. They commit iniquity and are too weary to repent. Oppression upon oppression, deceit upon deceit, they refuse to know me, says the Lord. When those who, are, who ought to be known by their radical identity of generosity, of welcome, of hospitality, fail to be welcome and hospitable, things don't go well. It reminds me of a time when I was young and newly married to my wife. We, um, we were living off of a very small uh, youth pastor's salary in one of the most expensive places in the country, in California. Uh, that went well. Um, we had a, a, a crazy opportunity. An extended family member said, hey, I'm throwing a birthday party. Would love for you to join us. Sounds great. This birthday party was a 12-night stay in one of the most luxurious hotels in the Caribbean. Uh, world-renowned uh, brand. I'm not going to say who it is, because that's mean. Um, but they, they were known for hospitality. Five-star resort. If there was a six-star, it would be there. Now, you would expect wonderful hospitality. You wouldn't expect bed bugs at a place like that. Um, and we came to find out that I'm pretty susceptible to bed bugs. It doesn't bother me. Um, my wife isn't. Um, to give you an idea of how bad the bed bugs were, on the back of her hand alone, I counted 33 bed bug bites. That extended then to the whole rest of her body. Um, she would literally just walk around crying because it hurts so bad. Um, we anticipated maybe like, hey, they're going to do something for us. Uh, but as we were walking to the uh, desk to let them know there's probably bed bugs in your, there are bed bugs in your room, um, two guests stopped her and said, Miss, where did you go? I don't want to go on that excursion. To which their kind hospitality at this hotel offered her a flower or a drink for the bed bugs. And she said, thank you, but can we switch rooms? So we switched rooms finally, and they, they committed to laundering all of our laundry, and we get into the room, and you know those swan um, little towels that they do sometimes, like with like the swan origami out of towels on the bed with rose petals and a bottle of champagne, and my wife looks at me and says, don't even think about it, don't touch me. And... <laughs> I walk over to the bottle of champagne with a nice little card there, and I'm like, oh, it's an apology card. Nope, it says, happy 25th anniversary, Mr. and Mrs. Jones. To which I'm thinking, I hope that they don't get the sorry for the bed bugs card in their room. <laughs> you see, when those who we expect 
to live out their identity of radical hospitality because of who they are, fail to do that, things go wrong. And praise God for Jesus who comes along and embodies all of this hospitality of Yahweh in the human flesh. I love what Christine Pohl describes in Jesus' life. It says, Jesus, who was dependent on the hospitality of others during much of his earthly sojourn, also served as gracious host in his words and his actions. Those who turned to him found welcome and rest and the promise of reception into the kingdom. Jesus urged his human hosts to open their banquets and dinner tables to more than family and friends who could return the favor, to give generous welcome to the poor and the sick who had little to offer in return. Much of Jesus' ministry is framed in hospitality. If you think about the way he fed the 5,000 who had nothing to eat, and the way that he healed the sick and brought restoration to their bodies, and the way that he cast out demons from those who were demonized to bring about freedom and welcome into the household of God. And you also think about the ways that he redefines who the household of God is. When much of God's people uh, anticipated that it's strictly the household of Israel, they were always meant to be a blessing to the nations. And so Jesus goes after the nations. He goes after the least and the last and the lost. And he does it in some powerful ways, leveraging a table and eating together as a way to welcome them into God's family. To eat at a table with someone at that time was a, was a, so, a social thing as, as much as it was just a physical thing of eating. When you dine with someone, you're aligning yourself with them and their status. You're making a declaration about yourself based on who you're with. And so when Jesus was eating with sinners and tax collectors, it was easy for the religious people to mistake him as being a sinner and a drunk just by the people he associated with. But he was only embodying the gracious host character of God. Kids, can you say hey? Oh, come on, last service was really big. Kids, say hey! Yeah! I think we've only got a couple. That, that's, hey, you guys, are, you guys are rocking it. Good job. Um, you know what I love, kids? I love that Jesus said these powerful words. Let the children come to me. Do you know he said that? He said, don't, he said to all the adults in the room, don't keep the children from coming to me. Don't let them stop you. You see, children in that day were, weren't welcomed in the same way that adults were. You had to like grow up first and talk like an adult and act like an adult before you're treated like an adult because that's what was important. Not for Jesus. Jesus said, let the children come to me. Don't stop them from coming to me. And I love what Jesus says in those same words to the people who are tired and burnt out, to the people who have given up on religion because it's just, it's a, it's a human game. He says, come to me. All you who are burdened heavy laden, stop striving. Let me give you rest. Jesus is constantly inviting us 
into his household and to his table, to relationship. So considering our working definition of hospitality, that it's rooted in God's gracious welcome to us, that it starts with the household of God, it includes the welcome of strangers into that household, and it serves as a gospel demonstration to the world, we see Jesus embodying that. And we see that the New Testament writers are picking up on the actions of Christ and how that welcomes us into God's household. I'm going to open up to Ephesians chapter 2, verse 11. If you have a Bible and want to follow along in your own Bible, please turn there. Ephesians chapter 2, verse 11. But if you'd like to follow along the screen or you'd like to close your eyes and I can read that to you, that is okay as well. Ephesians chapter 2, verse 11. It says, Therefore, remember that at one time you Gentiles in the flesh called the uncircumcision by what is called the circumcision, which is made by the flesh, in the flesh by hands, remember that you were at that time separated from Christ alienated from the commonwealth of Israel, strangers to the covenants of the promise, having no hope and without God in the world. Did you catch that? We Gentiles who are not a part of the household of Israel at one time before Christ were separated from God, cut off from relationship and from the the household of God without hope in the world. And here's the good news of the gospel. But now in Christ Jesus, You who were once far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ. For he himself is our peace, who has made us both one and broken down in his flesh the dividing wall of hostility by abolishing the law of commandments expressed in the ordinances that he might create in himself one new man in place of the two, so making peace, and might reconcile us to God in the body through the cross, thereby killing the hostility. And he came and he preached to you who were far off and preached to those who are near. For through him we have access in one spirit to the Father. So then you are no longer strangers and aliens, but you are fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God. Amen? The New Testament is filled with language that reflects God being a host and by Christ's blood and sacrifice on the cross welcoming us in, giving us a new identity as the people of God who then out of that identity love one another and love the stranger because we were strangers. That which has been done for us, we can now do for others. Not out of our own strength, not out of our own might, but as just a general way to live out this radical identity that we have. You are part of the family of God in Christ. Amen. I love um, how Tim Keller, even uh, before I go there, I want to read a few other places where we see the commands that are birthed out of this identity. Uh, In Romans 15, we see hospitality language come where it says, therefore, welcome one another as Christ has welcomed you for the glory of God. Bear one another's burdens. If anyone does not provide for his own relatives, especially for the members of the household, he's denied the faith and is worse than an unbeliever. What that's saying is that if if you can't even practice welcoming the people who are already welcomed in the same household, that is the church, if you can't care for the household of God, 
You don't even understand the gracious welcome that you've been given. So live that out. Let brotherly love continue, Hebrews 13. Do not neglect to show hospitality to strangers, for thereby some have entertained angels unaware. Remember those who are in prison as though in prison with them, and those who are mistreated since you are as you are also in the body. The gospel is a generous, hospitable act of hospitality, of justice, and of equity. And we get to play a part in that to the world. As the people of God began practicing this, they gained a reputation that Tim Keller um, outlines. He has five points that made the early church unique, and they're all influenced by hospitality in one way or the other, and one in particular. First, something that made the early church unique was that it was a multiracial community and experienced a unity across ethnic bounds that was startling. There's no way that a church and a people could be multiracial and experience unity across ethnic boundaries unless it is through a radical gospel and a radical welcome. Secondly, it was a community of forgiveness and reconciliation. Third, it was famous for its hospitality to the poor and the suffering. Fourth, it was a community committed to the sanctity of life. And fifth, it was a sexual counterculture amidst a culture of polygamy. This reputation was what marked the early church. Keller says, well, while it's expected to care for the poor of one's family or tribe in those times, Christians' promiscuous help to all the poor, even other races and religions, as taught in Jesus' parable of the Good Samaritan, was unprecedented for the time. We even see pagans begin to notice what the church is doing and how they're welcoming people. Emperor Julian in AD 362, uh, as he tried to reestablish the Hellenic religion, had an interesting discourse with the high priest of Hellenism. And here's what he said. Uh, By the way, as he refers to uh, atheists, he's referring to Christians. So read that. Why do we not observe that it is their benevolence to strangers, their care for the graves of the dead, and their pretend holiness of their lives that have done most to increase atheism? For it is disgraceful that when no Jew has ever, ever has to beg, and the impious Galileans or Christians support not only their own poor, but ours as well, all men see that our people lack aid from us. Teach those of the Hellenic faith to contribute to the public service of this sort. I love that. Christians in their radical hospitality and care for the least, the last, and the lost made the pagans perk up and say, they care for their people and ours? Try to do what they're doing. So for us, as we continue the the journey along hospitality, we see as the decades went on, as the centuries went on, things started to change. One of the most significant changes that happened in the fourth or fifth century when it came to ancient hospitality is perhaps out of need or maybe out of inability or lack of desire, much of the hospitality that was taking place in personal ways in people's homes began to be outsourced to particular institutions. 
So instead of a lot of hospitality in the home, we started to see uh, institutions like hospitals, hostels, and even hospice care start to rise up, which are wonderful places where good work is happening, but is it happening because the church wasn't personally stepping up? Who knows? We also start to see people take hospitality as a valued moral act in a culture and start to use it for their own gain. In later centuries, we have religious leaders as well as, um, as, well as other Christians start to use hospitality as a way to climb the social ladder, welcoming, welcoming and inviting the rich, the wealthy, the influential, much like we you know, see today in entertainment industry or entertaining in the home with elaborate recipes and fine china and really great, wonderful dinner conversations, but only to people who look just like us or a little better and talk just like us or a little better, we can start leveraging the table as a means of a social ladder and influence. And maybe we see some of the most drastic changes when it comes to household and hospitality post-industrial revolution, where for the first time in history, much of what happened inside of the home when it came to vocation and education and family and hospitality starts once again getting outsourced outside of the home. And we see a lot of things where people just aren't home as much. And then instead of the interconnected web of a household of multi-generational family, we start to see a focus on the nuclear family in uh, about the 1950s. And by the 1960s, the Madison Avenue admin have taken over much of the imagination of American people. And we start getting marketed to our desires, not our needs, and chasing after a lie of consumerism, which only requires us to work more and make more so that we can buy more thus being less connected and less rooted to the places and spaces where hospitality naturally was happening before. And here we find ourselves today in a city like Denver where it feels like maybe 50% of the folks are as transient as it comes and maybe for good, good reasons. But a rootedness and an openness seems to have escaped our imagination. So what does it look like for us here and now in Denver, 2023, when people are lonelier than ever, when mental health is at an all-time low, when so many are isolated relationally post-pandemic, with a potential recession looming and the fear around that for people's basic needs, what does it look like for us to embody this definition of hospitality? For us to be rooted in God's gracious welcome to us. To be loving and focused primarily here in the household of God and then extending that welcome to the strangers intentionally so that we can serve as a gospel demonstration to the world. We have to remember who we are. We are guests Welcome to the banquet. And it's from this place and from this identity in this time in history that we can reclaim a radical hospitality. There was an early church father named St. John Chrysostom, and he had this fascinating call to Christians. He said, all Christians, 
ought to prepare and make room in their house, a literal room. No matter the size of their home, no matter the amount of money that they had or didn't have, make a room and call it the Christ room so that when the sojourner comes through, he may stay there, so that when the poor is in need, he has a place to sleep, to when the traveler comes through, you can welcome them. So my question for us today, how will we make room? Maybe not a physical room. Maybe we don't have the space for that, though our homes statistically, this time in history, are the largest they've ever been on average. Maybe we still don't have like a place or you're, you're in college living in the dorms, you can't just like carve out something in the wall. I think that's frowned upon. But I don't want to dismiss the fact that maybe the Lord is putting on someone's heart, heart to make a room. But as we look at things like our calendar, like how do, how do you make room in your calendar to be interruptible? To be able to welcome people into relationship with you? To have a, a meal with strangers? What does it look like for you to make room in your work lunch schedule to invite a coworker in, to learn their story, to hear from them. Kids, what does it look like for you in your neighborhood to make room in your friend group for one more person who may not be welcomed in? Or for you to take time on a Sunday to learn someone's name and remember it. That's the hard part, right? Remember it when you do the passing of the peace. I think everyone's name is John for some reason. Um, what does it look like for us in our finances to make room to care for the poor? the widow, the orphan? What does it look like for us to make room in our hearts for the people that are different than us? It's out of the identity of who we are that we get to participate in this mission of God. And so Bailey and Neil are going to come up here. Um, they've thought through some really incredible ways that we can start making room in our lives as we consider our neighborhoods, as we consider our city, and we really just want to put some tangible steps into how this can happen, even in your gospel community. So no matter if you're single or married, kid or adult, this is something that all of us can really participate in as we live out that identity and start to take some steps towards becoming a radical community of hospitality. So Neil and Bailey, come on up. Thanks, Josh. God never gets the address wrong. Say it with me. God never gets the address wrong. That means where you live, there is great purpose. And our neighborhoods are a field in need of workers to cultivate gospel-centered relationships. And there may be some of you that are just like, okay, I do not want to come off as the overbearing, weird Christian neighbor or you may be in the camp of, okay, I've lived next door to my neighbors for a year plus, and I still haven't learned their names, so now, like, reaching out to them feels really awkward and uncomfortable. I get it. From me, this is your official permission to start over, start fresh, um, because just like Josh is saying, um, we are being sent by the Lord. He has welcomed us so we can be brave to welcome somebody else into relationship. I'm Bailey Hurley, and I'm the community coordinator here at Park Church, and I'm also a neighbor in the Wash Park area. 
Our family has spent a lot of time trying to be intentional to reach out and make these connection points with our neighbors. And it has been really, really sweet. So I'm here today to share some ideas that have worked for us um, that we're hoping can be some good practices for all of you. Naturally, we want to mobilize your gospel communities because you're already meeting in a neighborhood weekly, regularly. But if you're not in a gospel community, try these ideas as roommates, friends, um, or maybe even with your current neighbors you have relationships with. These are all cost-friendly and also kid-friendly. So here you go. Put on your party planner hat. The first idea for you all is a classic coffee open house. Create a little note for doors, maybe text your neighbors and say, hey, this Saturday we are going to get cozy and have some coffee and refreshments. Just come over when you feel, well, when you feel like it. Um, I like to add a little note to say, bring your favorite coffee mug from home. It's a great conversation starter to kind of hear their story, hear a little bit about their background. And also my husband and I joke, it's like one less dish for us to wash because they have to take it home with them. Um, Second is have a trail mix mixer. So get your people together and each bring an item that would go in a trail mix and make baggies together. Um, Include little notes with your name, maybe saying something like, hey, I'm so grateful that you live next door or thanks for being an awesome neighbor or thanks for not being those neighbors. Um, But don't actually include that last one. Um, And leave it at their doors. Just, you know, saying a a little touch point. And then my final idea for y'all is to meet this week at a neighborhood cafe or restaurant and introduce yourself to the staff. Maybe pray for that business um, while you're there or just pull the manager aside and say, thanks for being a part of this community. We really are glad that you are here. We have so many local businesses that I think um, that is something they would really appreciate and love to hear. I know we're a transient city. And I know even us, we like move around so often as rental agreements change or your job changes and you're moving in the, na- in the city. But no matter how long you're in a place, you can still create a safe home for people to be known and cared for. And there are so many creative people in this room right now, rock stars who have so many awesome thoughts. So I hope this is a jumping off point for all of you. Um, and I hope that you guys try something new. Neil is here to offer one last idea. Thanks, Bailey. Um, One other quick resource for you all. If you look in the pew back, uh, maybe next to the Bibles, or if you're over in the gallery, there should be some underneath your chair. Um, This little, upside down, three by three magnet. Um, These emerged from actually a couple pastors up in Arvada a number of years ago, about 12, 13 years ago. Uh, They said, we want to we want to love our city. We want to love our neighborhoods and figure out what this looks like to do in, in practical ways. So they actually went to their mayor and their city council and said, what can we do? Uh, what does that look like for us to, to serve you all? Is it maybe getting into the school system? Is it doing cleanup days? Like, what, what do you guys need? We want to have, you know, huge impact. Without missing a beat, the mayor looked back at them and said, teach your people to be good neighbors. He said, simply, people have, have lost the, the goodness of being present in their physical neighborhood, getting to know their names, investing in those relationships, and just showing up when, when they need you, um, and kind of seeing what, what emerges in that relationship over time. Uh, so they, they actually wrote a book called The Art of Neighboring. Uh, both of them still uh, live uh, northwest of, of Denver. And this went along with the book. So this is a, a, a tool. It's a resource. Um, really, it's a, it's a beginning point uh, to get to know your neighbors a little bit better. So the way it works, pretty simple. You are the yellow house in the middle. 
or apartment or wherever you are, the basement that you're renting out, um, that's you. And even if the, the exact uh, other eight squares don't fit geographically, use your imagination, uh, but these other white squares are your neighbors. Gra- grab a dry erase marker or whatever else and start filling in the names of your neighbors. If you're anything like me, uh, you have a conversation uh, just over the summer. We had new neighbors move in next door and met their names. We're like dreaming up plans for how we're going to spend time together. And then they've, with work schedule and one's in grad school and everything else, we haven't seen them, but maybe one or two times. And I remember her name, but I forget his name. It's like, man, if I just would have written that down, I could be praying for them, looking for opportunities to, uh, to connect with them further. Uh, other neighbors, maybe you've connected with a number of times, but this can serve as a reminder uh, to pray for them Maybe stick it on the fridge if they come over. Uh, maybe tuck it away, tuck it away in a drawer. Um, otherwise, it gets kind of strange. Um, the goal is not to, to turn people into some sort of project, but we're forgetful. We all, we all have very full schedules, and as we're learning to make more room in those schedules to, to invest in our neighbors, um, this is a way just to remember names, to pray for them, to care for them. Uh, so please grab one of these, um, take it home with you, put it on the fridge or somewhere else, uh, do it as a family. Uh, it's a great way just to, to see your neighborhood differently and see your neighbors differently. Um, one other bonus that just came out uh, this week. Um, you guys, if you're on Park Church forums through CCB, you would have seen a couple emails from Stephanie Efkin, a uh, member here at Park. Uh, even if you're not, you've probably seen some of the news articles and everything else. We have a steady stream of refugees coming into our city uh, right now, um, just more even the past few days. And talk about loving, showing hospitality to the stranger. These are people who, not really by choice, have come to this new place, this strange place, and are trying to figure out what does it look like to to make our way here, to get acclimated. Um, We have the opportunity as the people of God to welcome them in in some really tangible ways. And so Stephanie is is gathering a lot of the things they're asking for, uh, clothing, bags, work shoes, a number of other supplies for them. Um, and she's collecting those, and they're going to drop those off. She's already done one van load from our church, and she's ready to do another one here in the next week or so. Um, and there are also volunteer opportunities. If you want to invest in some of those relationships and um, just actively show hospitality to the refugees that are in our city right now. Um, I, I'm actually going to hang out up here after the service, and I'm happy to give you her contact information um, or join Park Church Forums through CCB. Uh, if you don't that, no, don't know what that means, come find me, and I'll, I'll get you connected there. Um, yeah, let's let's be neighbors. Let's let's show hospitality those uh, in our neighborhood, but also those who are are just entering in uh, from other contexts. I'm going to hand it back over to Josh. I love that there are such easy and tangible ways for us to get involved in the mission of God right here, right now. It's the ordinary, everyday stuff of life. Um, I highly recommend if you're interested in this topic and want to learn more or the, or the Spirit's nudging you, uh, pick up this book. This is called uh, The Gospel Comes with a House Key by Rosaria Butterfield. Um, I'm going I'm to close this out with a quick passage from that. She says, radically ordinary hospitality, those who live it see strangers as neighbors and neighbors as the family of God. They recoil at reducing a person to a category or a label. They see God's image reflected in the eyes of every human being on earth. They know that they are like meth addicts and sex trade workers. They take their own sins seriously, including the sin of selfishness and pride. They take God's holiness and goodness seriously. They use the Bible as a lifeline with no exceptions. Those who live out radically ordinary hospitality see their home not as theirs at all, but as God's gift to use for the furtherance of his kingdom. They open doors. They seek out the underprivileged. 
they know that the gospel comes with a house key. If you're interested in diving in, I'm going to leave a handful of books that have been influential in this topic amongst some of our leadership up at the front. Snap a picture. Um, These aren't mine. I do have to return them, so please don't take them. But find your favorite online retailer or uh, local bookshop. Um, The last piece I want to leave you with. There has been a long-standing tradition based on Abraham's experience with his wife Sarah practicing hospitality to three strangers who turned out to be angels. And some believe that uh, even God himself embodied in an angelic form. And so let me leave you with this thought that practicing hospitality is an opportunity to experience the very presence of God in the face of a stranger, in the face of a neighbor, or in opening up your home. In Matthew 25, it says, when the Son of Man comes in his glory and all the angels with him, then he will sit on his glorious throne. Before him will be gathered all the nations. He will separate people one from another as a shepherd separates sheep from goats. He will place the sheep on his right and the goats on his left, and the king will come and say to those on his right, come, you who are blessed by my father, inherit the kingdom prepared for you from the foundation of the world. For I was hungry and you gave me food. I was thirsty and you gave me drink. I was a stranger and you welcomed me. I was naked and you clothed me. I was sick and you visited me. I was in prison and you came to me. Then the righteous will answer him saying, Lord, when did we see you hungry and feed you? Or thirsty and give you a drink? And when did we see you a stranger and welcome you? Or naked and clothe you? When did we see you in prison or visit you? And the king will answer, truly, I say to you, as you did this to one of the least of my brothers, you did it to me. Let's pray. Jesus, may we seek to behold your face in the face of a stranger. Would you help us make room in our lives, in the places that you are convicting us, in the, in the ways that our, our imagination is running wild, whether it's at welcoming someone into our home for dinner or having lunch with a coworker or serving the immigrants coming into Denver. Lord, would you uh, mark Park Church, set us aside as a community that is known for radical hospitality. Lord, as we have been welcomed by you, may we welcome others, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Hey, thanks for listening. Park Church exists to make disciples of Jesus for the glory of God and the joy of all people. More information and more resources can be found online at parkchurch.org. Take care.